Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Stand up for democracy. Support South Africa's hard-won media freedom. It starts with you. LeadSA.co.za Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby and the Naked Scientist. Looking at my uh, producer, who seems to have dissolved into a puddle over in the corner. Not entirely sure how that happened. Chris, are you there? Hello. Hello, how are you ah, doing? I'm well, thank you. How are things Merry going? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas very to well, you. you. You've got very seasonable weather, don't you? Yeah, perfect. If you're into that kind of thing, I suppose. <laughs> I'd rather have your weather, to be frank. Yes. No, um, I'm, there I'm, we are. I'm sure you will. Look, the lines are, are, are firing up already. Lots of people with lots of questions, particularly ahead of uh, Christmas Eve. Are your preparations for Christmas Eve going all right? Well, actually, I was just going to ask you, and maybe the advice of everyone um, listening today, I need a good Christmas present idea for my wife. So uh, <laughs> if anyone has any suggestions to get me out of trouble, that would be very helpful. All right. Well, asking people in another country is a good way to go around it. <laughs> okay. Let's go to Joan in four ways first. Joan, you're first up. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Chris. Um, Hi, Joan. I'm phoning to ask um, about my daughter who lives in Canada. She has this condition called sarcoidosis. And uh, she's really not very well. They've put her onto medication corticosteroids. Do you know very much about this? Well, sarcoidosis is an inflammatory condition. And it's, well, there are some tests you can do to confirm that people have it. You can look for an enzyme in the bloodstream, which she, is... She's had uh, tests and, and yep. they found that it's in her lungs. Yes. Well, it can affect actually any tissue in the body. Yes. And yes. you tend to get inflammation in these tissues, but it's not caused by an infection. It's caused by the body's own cells producing too many inflammatory chemicals. And it can also, because it activates macrophages, these are big cells that, that break things down in the body. Their job is to clean things up like dustmen. Uh, they actually also produce various other chemicals that signal other tissues to start to, to reorganize themselves as well. And so you get this inflammation. So the treatment is to give steroids, glucocorticoids, things like prednisolone, and this damps down the immune system and therefore slows down the rate at which this damage occurs. Um, one of the other things and side effects you can get with sarcoidosis is that the level of calcium in the blood can become too high because macrophages can activate vitamin D and so you absorb a bit too much calcium from the diet that you eat and as a result taking the glucocorticoids can help with that as well because too much calcium can cause things like kidney stones. So at the moment it's one of those conditions that 
the cause for it is poorly understood. The outcomes are understood, but we know how to control it, but we don't know how to stop it completely. So you have to take drugs like steroids that damp it down and stop it progressing. Yes, 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 because she phoned me the other day and she was really in a very bad way. And she's got diabetes as well, so that doesn't help, I suppose. Is it, is it quite a serious condition? Well, it's quite a common condition, and it's varying in severity. So some people have a more severe manifestation, other people have very mild manifestations, but it's one of those, those diseases that can pretty much affect any tissue in the body. And some people tend to have more uh, impact on certain tissues than others. It, it, can, it can even affect the brain, um, and you, you can get various CNS, central nervous system, consequences. But on the whole, it's, it's common to see this in, in lung tissue. Okay, and, and the chances of her getting rid of this? Uh, it's one of those conditions, a bit like diabetes, that we're quite good at managing as long as we keep an eye on it, um, but we don't know at the moment how to make it go away. Okay. So it is a chronic condition, but it's one that is controllable with drugs like uh, steroids, but it does need careful management and needs her to watch yeah, her health carefully so that she can be followed up. from England that was treating her and he's committed suicide, so she's right. got to find another doctor that can take over. Right, jo Joan, I know, I know people do recover from it as well. I've got one or two people that are telling me that they've had it and they've recovered. So, Joan, good luck with that and good luck to your daughter as well. I know it's, it's horrible when someone is so far away and is quite ill. Let's go to uh, Ray in University Estate. Hi, Ray. Morning, Stephen. Hi, Chris. In science fiction novels... Uh, distances are sometimes referred to as clicks, K-L-I-C-K-S, and light seconds. Now, I, I can't, I, there's no point of reference in my mind for mm. these distances. Uh, can you convert them into kilometrage or miles that I can <laughs> sort of understand it? Hello, Ray. Well, the problem with space is it's a huge place. And if we talk about the kinds of distance scales that we use to measure things on Earth in space, yeah. the numbers become so extraordinarily huge that they become almost as meaningless as the numbers that you're referring to, which are in different units. Yeah. So what astronomers and space scientists have done is instead to invent a new kind of unit which is more meaningful for the massive scales at which space works. So the most commonly used one, and the one which most people understand, is the light year. And we know how fast light travels. We know how fast light travels in a second. And so we can talk about how fast light travels in a year because we know that the speed of light is 300,000 kilometers every second. And given that there are 60 seconds in a minute, there are 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, and 365 days in a year, if you multiply those numbers together and then by 300,000, that's how many kilometers light travels in a year. And a light second, instead of doing it for a, a year, you're doing it for a second. And so that a light second is 300,000 kilometers every second because it's the distance that light has traveled in just one second. And that's, that's because the universe being as huge as it is and growing, you need a scale which is yeah. capable of representing that. Converting that into another kind of money, you could say that light does about a billion kilometers per hour. And wow. if you were on Pluto and you wanted to send a message to us in the inner solar system, which is about six billion kilometers away, this radio program would take six hours after transmission from Pluto before you could begin to hear it uh, near the sun or where we are. Sure. So that's the scale of space that light even takes hours to get anywhere. I thought that a, a, a click, I thought a click was an Americanism for a kilometer. 
Well, th yeah, I mean, people talk about kilometres as clicks because they click round on the dial on the car on old-fashioned odometers. Yeah. I think that's where it comes from. That's I don't know if anyone is. knows any better. Yeah. Um, but so clicks is kilometres, and we don't really use kilometres in space because the, the distances are so huge, and so it, it tends to be that you run out of paper to write big enough numbers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ray, thank, thank you, you so much. I, I love science fiction. I'm also a big science fiction fan. John and Comicky, good morning. Your question for the Naked Scientist. The facts and reasons concerning the summer and winter solstices are, are well known. But using the Southern Hemisphere as an example, on or about the 22nd of December, the summer solstice, the sun is overhead at its furthest point south, causing the longest hours of daylight for all places south of the Tropic of uh, Capricorn and, of course, the shortest for all places north. And the situation is reversed on or about the 21st of June. This being the case, it would be uh, logical to expect that on the longest day, sunrise would occur at its earliest for any day of the year and sunset at its latest. However, studying uh, tables of sunrise and sunset times, it's clear that this isn't the case. The facts are that the earliest sunrise occurs roughly three weeks before the solstice and thereafter starts to occur later each day. Similarly, uh, the latest sunset occurs roughly three weeks after the solstice and only thereafter starts to occur earlier again each day. A clear explanation for this unexpected <laughs> phenomenon is needed. Can you help? <laughs> Chris? <laughs> I'll certainly try to. Hello, John. Um, the answer is that the Earth does not go around the Sun in a nice circle. And if you had uh, a spherical thing like the Earth tilted over a bit, 23.5 degrees, which is the, the tilt on its axis that we've got, so that's why you get seasons, because the Northern Hemisphere is angled away from the Sun during the Northern Hemisphere's winter and towards the Sun during the Northern Hemisphere's winter and vice versa for North and South. And so as it goes round, certain bits of the Earth's surface will therefore present uh, a greater area towards the sun and therefore have more solar input during those times of the year and therefore get more or less heat, respectively. That's why we have seasons. It's not to do with the distance that the Earth is actually tilted towards or away from the sun because relative to the distance to the sun, the amount that the Earth is tilted over is tiny. It's actually to do with how much of the Earth's surface is presenting itself towards the sun and therefore getting light, which means heat coming in from the sun at any one time of year. Now, the... If, if the sun was in the centre and the earth going around it in a perfect circle, then you would expect this nice, easy to predict, uh, sun will rise here, set there, longest day here, shortest day here, and so on. But the sun is actually orbited by the earth in an ellipse, and that means that as the earth's going round, uh, the uh, bit of the ellipse, which is the flat bit, if you imagine if you draw a flat ellipse across a piece of paper, then it's going to be pointy at the two ends and flatter in the middle, uh, up at, uh, at the top and bottom. And as it's going along that flat bit, this is where the Earth is still, of course, doing its, doing its thing. It's turning round and going round the sun. But it's got to sort of slip its gears a little bit as it goes along there because you've got a, f a long flat side to complete rather than just a nice circle. And what this has the effect of doing is putting the morning sunrise and, and nighttime sunset times slightly out of step so that 
the, as I say, it's like almost like a, a clutch slipping in a cl in a car, so that the times will change a little bit without the Earth really moving much further round on that flat side. And as a result, you see this shift in the uh, time that the sun rises and sets for that reason. It's very hard to explain on the radio, but if you draw a little diagram on a bit of paper, or if you write to me, I will attempt to help if I haven't made it clear already. Or if anyone's got an even better way of thinking about it, please <laughs> contribute. All answers are welcome. <laughs> John? <laughs> I think you've done a marvellous job. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, John, on the line from Comcast. I had to say, Chris, when 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 that question came up, I thought, "Oh my word, I don't actually understand what on earth is going." But uh, fantastic one. We've got a question on the uh, SMS line here about diabetes. Uh, it doesn't have a cure. Why is that? Why why can you not cure diabetes? Well, there are two kinds of diabetes. Uh, we talk about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and this is diabetes mellitus, as in diabetes associated with sugar, because there's another kind of diabetes called diabetes insipidus, and this is where a person just makes far too much urine. Um, in fact, I think it was Thomas Willis, who uh, was an anatomist, who was an English anatomist and working a few hundred years ago, and he actually gave the term diabetes mellitus and diabetes insipidus its name. Um, diabetes actually means siphon in Greek, and uh, Thomas Willis observed that people with diabetes piss a great plenty, or piss a plenty, yes. and that's why he called it diabetes, because of the siphon effect. Mm. And some people say, although they might be wrong, Mm. that he actually tasted the urine of people from diabetes <coughs> with diabetes excuse me and because people with diabetes who were untreated would have had sweet urine if they had diabetes mellitus the sugar associated form uh, then they would have had sweet urine if they'd had diabetes insipidus just made enormous amounts of urine it would have tasted yuck probably <laughs> tasted yuck anyway yes, but say. it just would have been yuck and sweet uh, but that's where the name comes from uh, but diabetes mellitus, the sugar-associated type, comes in two flavours, if you like. There's type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is often associated with a juvenile or young onset. Uh, about the age of 12 or 11 is the average age that uh, young people get type 1 diabetes. And in this condition, uh, the pancreas, which is an organ that sits just below the stomach in the abdomen and makes insulin has some kind of problem which leads to the immune system attacking the pancreas and destroying selectively the cells called beta islets of uh, in the in the islets of Langerhans the beta cells and these make insulin so the pancreas loses all of the cells that it's got that enable it to make insulin so people with type 1 diabetes do not make any insulin and insulin is a critical hormone which when it goes into the bloodstream it tells tissues all around the body to take glucose, sugar, out of the bloodstream and put it into the cells. And this includes the liver, so it packs away glucose for storage as glycogen. It means things like your nerve cells. It means muscle cells. Every cell in the body needs insulin there to tell it to get the glucose into the cell. And, and, and it sort of turns on little transporters on the cell surface that bring the glucose into the cell. So if you don't have any insulin, you, you can't get the glucose out of the bloodstream and into cells properly. And as a result, you get a very high level of glucose in the bloodstream. And when it goes into the kidney, it gets filtered into the tubules inside the kidney that make the urine. And the presence of the glucose there pulls water into the tubule and therefore acts as a diuretic. It increases the amount of urine being produced while simultaneously making the person lose sugar and therefore lose energy. And that's why people also lose weight when they've got diabetes. 
Now, the other kind of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, is more often associated with a maturity onset, an older age onset, and it's often associated with people being too obese or too fat. And carrying too much weight um, seems to, in some way, make the body become resistant to your own insulin. So you need more insulin to get the same effect than you would do normally. And it's almost like cells are becoming deaf to the insulin signal. And so that type of diabetes can be managed more easily than type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes can be managed by losing weight for a start, eating a healthy diet, and sometimes giving drugs that can boost up the level of activity of the pancreas to make more insulin, and that can be very well controlled. Type 1 diabetes, because it's caused by an absolute lack of insulin, you have to take insulin, in other words, inject it, because it's a protein, you can't, you can't actually eat it, you can't pop a pill, you have to inject it into the body. And so that is required by people who have type 1 diabetes. But because it's caused either by a complete lack of insulin, because the cells are dead, or because some biochemical problem has caused your cells to become deaf to the insulin signal, you have to increase or replace the insulin accordingly in order to get your blood sugars back to normal. Okay, so, so type 1 then you, you definitely, obviously, wouldn't be able to cure. But type 2, can you actually, if someone is, you know, overweight or whatever, if they have lots of exercise, not much food, etc., you can actually bring the whole situation back under control? Yeah, a good example of this is that there's a kind of diabetes which is associated with pregnancy, and that's called gestational diabetes. And so when women are pregnant, what doctors will often do is to test their glucose tolerance. What you do is feed a pregnant lady a big portion of sugar, something very sweet, like a sugary drink, and then measure the amount of blood glucose and urine glucose for a period of time afterwards. And for some reason, probably because of the fact that pregnancy needs a lot of energy, babies make women a bit resistant to their own insulin and so people may therefore become temporarily a bit glucose intolerant in other words they have a relative deficit of, of insulin when they're pregnant and then when the baby comes out it goes away but this can be a, a a sign that you need to be careful because you might be at higher risk of getting diabetes at a later stage in life but there's a good example of if you manage things carefully don't eat too much sugar and keep your weight down that you can reduce the risk uh, as you get older all right, 8830 Your questions for the Naked Scientist with us until 10.30. Grant from Lakeside, hi. Hi, guys. Uh, just a quick question. You know, I've heard it a hundred times before. When, I, when you go to the beach in, in Cape Town, you always get told, be careful of the African sun because it's very much hotter. Um, I don't know why that's the case. Uh, is it possible that the African sun or the southern hemisphere sun is hotter than the northern hemisphere? Good question. Chris? Hello, Grant. I can think of a couple of possibilities, and maybe other people can, can chip in as well. Chris, uh, you're talking about how the African sun could perhaps seem at least to be hotter than other suns. Well, what I was saying is that there's this very big hole in the ozone layer, which is over the southern hemisphere. It's about the size of Australia. And the ozone layer is very important because it prevents ultraviolet rays from the sun, which are the short wavelength forms of light that the sun emits and which are capable of burning us it prevents those from getting into the lower atmosphere where we are. But because of this ozone thinning over the southern hemisphere, which includes the bottom end of South Africa, um, then you could end up with a higher ingress of ultraviolet, and this will cook you more effectively. So I think there's a number of factors. One, it's very sunny anyway. Two, that you've got a cooling breeze coming off the ocean, because anywhere near the sea feels colder than it really is, because you have a wind chill effect. And three, there's a bit of ozone thinning, which may boost the ultraviolet ingress and therefore burn you more. All right, okay, interesting question there. Ruben from uh, Karen Park. Hi, Ruben. 
Hi, good morning. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go for it. Yeah, I'm a man of 55 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm suffering from a condition known as amotrophic lateral sclerosis. Yeah. And and in my case, it has been it has been confirmed that this is caused by mercury in my system. So what I want to ask is, how can one reduce the effect of mercury in the system or stop it altogether? Because my neurologist, I'm struggling to speak because my, my neurologist have given up hope on me. Oh, Rubens, awful story. Okay, Ruben. Hello, Ruben. I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, ALS, or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also has the name motor neuron disease. Yeah, and this is a condition, yeah. this is a condition uh, which is caused by the motor neurons, the motor nerve cells which are in the spinal cord and which control voluntary muscles, beginning to die. And no one knows exactly why this happens. It may run in families. It may be that there is some factor in the environment which is responsible. In other people, it's probably just some kind of biochemical thing where the cells build up some kind of waste product inside the cell that slowly damages them. At the moment, there's no way of curing or preventing the disease, although scientists have been experimenting with various chemicals that can make the level of stress in the nerve cells that are vulnerable less because one theory is that the cells that get affected by the disease are chronically stressed and they are producing various inflammatory substances that cause the cells to fail and so uh, if you give drugs which damp down cell stress this might help to reduce the rate at which the cells are lost um so i'm very sorry to hear about your predicament um mercury i don't think is the sole cause mercury causes a number of conditions in the cns and the central nervous system not just uh, als and as a result i would expect that there would be other signs or symptoms if you had that um but it but it's possible that there are other things going on as well um, and i'm very sorry to hear that the neurologist doesn't think they can do much more for you but the, the bottom line is that in medicine you can always do something that's my motto and whether that's um, helping people to go about their life better so they enjoy the time they do have or solve simple problems so that, they, that, that going about your daily life is made easier that's still doing something and i hope that that you're able to get that kind of care so that you can enjoy what time you have left all right, Ruben, good luck, and, and, and hopefully you'll have a good Christmas tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks, Ruben, on the line from Corin Park. Terrible story there. Jeez, you kind of hope that, that uh, a lot more could be done for him. All right, let's go to uh, Jan in Centurion. Jan, you, Jan, you've got a fascinating question. Uh, good day, guys. Uh, yes, Chris. Um, I, I've got an, a genetic question. Uh, apparently, 70,000 years ago, human beings went through a big bottleneck. So, which left us with very few uh, females to breed, apparently only about 3,000 or so. So my question is now, if that is so, why are we still so fertile? Because, you know, when we breed cattle or anything else, uh, after so many generations, uh, fertility would, would, uh, would be at a loss. Please, that's my question. Fascinating question, Chris. Hello, Jan. Um, well... I would say that uh, I don't know whether this bottleneck uh, definitely occurred, but we know that the human population has definitely gone through many, many bottlenecks over the course of our evolution. We first appeared 
in one form or another about six million years ago, almost certainly in Africa, probably somewhere around Ethiopia is where the earliest hominid specimens turn up. And we then would have spread out across the African continent, including down into South Africa, which has some of the best homo specimens preserved, going back, tracing our evolutionary history. And then modern humans probably appeared about 155,000 years ago or so, and then exited Africa maybe 50 or 60,000 years ago and colonized the rest of the world, going with them as they did with various markers, chemically and genetically, which we can now use to piece back together the migration that the early people took to get to where they ended up on the Earth's surface. And there was a lovely paper that was published a few years ago by researchers at Cambridge University, and they looked at a gut bacterium called Helicobacter pylori. And this is the same bug that causes ulcers and stomach cancer in some people, but because in most people it's carried for a very long time and doesn't cause any harm, it's therefore ferried around with people and passed from one person to the next. But just like us, the bug is genetically variable. So if you look at the genetics of the bug in modern populations, it tells you about the bug that must have been passed into them by their ancestors. And you can trace the migration of people around the Earth using this kind of genetics. And so we do know that there are distinct populations of people who've got to distinct places on Earth, and they have very characteristic features telling us that they have become specialised for, for life in various parts of the Earth. If you look at Aborigines in Australia, they're very, very different than the Indians in South America. If you look at people up north, Eskimos, they're short and squat and have paler skin. If you look at people in Europe, they tend to be lankier and very, very pale. If you look at people in equatorial Africa, they are really, really dark because of sunlight and having to make lots of melanin in order to protect the skin from UV damage and the loss of folate. So in other words, there have been lots and lots of bottlenecks over, over time because the only way that could have happened is if you have restricted the number of genes that people are working from or, in order or, to get them all to look one way. All right, Chris, we'll have to continue with that. Uh, Chris Smith will be with us, The Naked Scientist, until 10.30. Plenty more to come taking your questions and your queries. What have you done to lead South Africa? Leadsa.co.za Good morning, Stephen in for Reedy this morning. You know the number to dial Father Christmas coming up in about 40 minutes' time from now. We'll take your questions for Father Christmas. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk, The Naked Scientist. Chris Smith uh, with us on the line from the UK. Chris, we've finally got some SMSs to help you out with your uh, Christmas Day problem for your wife tomorrow. Fantastic. Go on. All right. Janice Traditional says, tell Chris to buy Chanel number no. 5. It works every time. <laughs> got to tell you, I'm. it, it does. <laughs> okay. Uh, another one, Gail Craig Hall Park, present for The Naked Scientist's wife, a holiday in South Africa, or if they have children... Babysitting vouchers. That's probably quite a good idea. <laughs> yeah, one of my friends at The Naked Scientist, Dr. Katani, um, she said to me, why don't you offer to babysit for the kids uh, for an extra day? And I said, uh, for a whole day? No, that would be birthday and Christmas, I would think, rather than just Christmas. No, I'm just, <laughs> kidding, just kidding. I often look after the kids. I'm yeah. pretty good like that. <laughs> <laughs> you say that and you hope that no one's listening. Uh, Amy says, uh, Chris, whatever you give her, it's a good idea to include a copy of uh, Desiderata. I think that must be a book. And that says Merry Christmas. So Desiderata seems to be a good book for, for why. Yeah, I should put Christmas. that on my list. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck. I know what it's like the day before when you haven't got something for the wife. Okay, let's go to some of the questions. Mario and Shwana, you've been uh, holding on for about an hour, it seems. Mario, good morning. Hi, good morning, uh, Stephen. Hi, Chris. Um, hi, Mario. Uh, hi. The thing about speed of light, it, it, it really seems easy to explain, but with Stephen Hawkins' explanation of building a spaceship and traveling eventually up into the speed of light for six years. How, and how do you explain to someone that those people in that spaceship 
don't age the same as the people that are left behind on Earth? How do the people on Earth <laughs> age quicker? Yes, uh, this know, is very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was actually Einstein that um, formulated these theories, and Einstein's special theory of relativity explains this. And put simply, the faster you go, the slower time goes for you compared with somebody else. And the reason for this is that uh, light is the fastest thing in the universe. And if you travel at the speed of light, then because you can't go faster than that, then the thing you're travelling through, this space-time, the thing that is space, has to deform or distort itself accordingly. And similarly, very, very big heavy things distort space-time and therefore change the way in which light travels through them, and that includes the time it takes. So, a good way to think about this is, as you go faster, you need more energy. Because you need more energy, uh, because E equals MC squared, you must be getting heavier, and if you're getting heavier, you're distorting space-time, and therefore you're changing the time frame for you, but not anybody else. So if you went into a rocket and went very, very fast, time would slow down for you, but would carry on at the normal rate for everybody else. And if you went on a very long spaceship journey and then came back, uh, and you'd been travelling at close to the speed of light, or at the speed of light if you could, let's say, then you would have aged by the journey time you thought you'd been taking, but the people on Earth would have aged a lot more. And uh, this, you can even detect effects um, which are similar around big static objects. So anything that's very, very big, which has therefore a lot of mass, will distort space-time around itself locally, and therefore time will run at a slightly different rate near it than, than, than anywhere else. And to take a, an earthly and African example of this, if you go and stand next to something giant like the, the, the Great Pyramid in Egypt, then time will run slightly more slowly there than it will elsewhere <laughs> on Earth. Someone's, yeah, someone's going to open a sort of anti-aging thing. I remember in a, in a science fiction book, a great science fiction fan, and one of the characters at the end says, but why haven't you aged more? And the other one just says, Einstein was wrong. They don't bother to explain. <laughs> they just say, Einstein was wrong. <laughs> I thought, great way to write yourself out of a hole. Okay, Ron, on the line from Warden. How's it, Ron? Ron, are you with Hi. us? Yes. Yes, I'm with you. I'm just pulling over. All right, carefully there. She's uh, just. Uh, the, the, we're fine. Thank the, you. The time in Ron's her car actually, is slowing down. Go for it. Ron's actually driving. I'm Georgina. <laughs> Hi, Georgina. Can you tell me what causes peripheral neuropathy? Okay. Gosh, interesting question, Chris. Hello, Georgina. Well, neuro Hello. means nerve cells, and opathy means something wrong with them, and peripheral means around the rest of the body, not the brain and spinal cord. So a peripheral neuropathy is damage to the peripheral nerves, and these are the motor nerves that supply messages from the spinal cord out to the muscles to enable you to make movements, the autonomic nerves that are your automatic nervous system that control things like your blood pressure and how open and closed blood vessels are, and sensory nerves, which include the nerves in your skin that enable you to feel a surface or tell whether it's hot and cold. And if those nerves get broken down or damaged, then the patch of skin that they supply is denervated and you may develop symptoms of hyperalgesia, something feels much more painful than it should, or anesthesia, you can't feel anything in that area, it becomes numb, or paralysis, you can't move it, for example, depending on which sort of peripheral nerve has been damaged. And the conditions that cause peripheral neuropathy are many and varied, and it can range from, there can be genetic things that cause this happening to happen, certain drugs can cause this, certain diseases can cause this, 
and there are associations with other diseases. So diabetes, for example, in some people will cause a neuropathy and people get something called mononeuritis multiplex, where they get odd patches of sensory nerve loss around the body. And this is probably, in the case of diabetes, caused by sugar getting into uh, cells which are called Schwann cells, which wrap around nerve cells and insulate them, and the sugar going into those cells gets converted into a different molecule called sorbitol, which pulls water into the Schwann cell and makes it swell up and squeezes the nerve stopping it working properly. So there's a whole ra range of different diseases that can cause uh, a neuropathy. All right, uh, interesting. Let's go to uh, Davin on the line from Hotter Beer Sport. Hi, Davin. Hi there. Um, so I'd just like to ask you, uh, a few weeks ago a lady phoned in and said, uh, said that this, this was work. If you were far away, from your, far away from where your spare keys were and you locked your car keys in the car, if you phoned someone at your house where the spare key is on the cell phone and they... Uh, on the line, click the open button on the car remote close to the cell phone, and your cell phone was close to the locked car, then that would open the car. Now, I tried that theory, but it didn't seem to work. Um, <laughs> is it true, or is it, could it work? Um, hello, I, I think it's probably unlikely, and the reason for this is that the way these remotes work is that they use microwaves, they use a microwave transmitter, and they will send a sequence of pulses or there'll be a message encoded into the microwave which the car is listening for and when it hears that message it says right that's my unique message and I have to open the car okay. the cell phone is communicating at a very different frequency it's using slightly different microwave frequencies than the car remotes and the evidence for that is that if you are on the phone and you press your key unlock for your car yeah. if they were working on the same frequency or very similar you would expect to hear interference for example yeah. on the phone it would block out your signal and it doesn't do that so there's evidence that the phone is working on a different frequency to the car alarm or the car unlocker and so if you take the car unlocker and turn it on when you're on the phone the phone is only talking to another phone via microwaves and it's not listening using its microphone to microwaves it's listening to sound waves so the only thing the phone will hear is what goes into the speaker on the phone and because the car unlock machine is not making sound waves it's making microwaves as far as the phone is concerned it's only hearing nothing so the only thing that would be transmitted to the other phone is nothing and therefore the other phone even if it could make the right frequency of microwaves wouldn't so the car doesn't hear anything so it doesn't unlock Okay. <laughs> All right, Devin, and a whole industry disappears as, as a result. whole chain email disappeared. We've got on the uh, SMS line, Chris, a question about uh, this person saying, I had two A4 batteries in my pocket together with some loose change. When I took them out, both the money and the batteries were so hot, they actually burnt my hand. Someone created an electric current in their pocket? Well... Coins are made of metal, and metals have an excess of free electrons, um, which means they're conductive. And batteries have a plus end and a minus end, of course. They want to, or they have an excess of electrons on one bit of the battery, and they want to push them around the circuit to get to the other end. So if you put the battery close to lots of coins, the coins can bridge the gap between the two terminals of the battery and short out the battery. And when electricity flows through something, it's pushing electrons along, and those electrons are encountering resistance in the material, and as they flow, they therefore generate some heat. You lose energy as heat, and things which are passing in electric current get hot. And that's exactly how a bar fire works. So what you've done is to make your own miniature bar fire in your pocket. Um, and it is possible with certain very low internal resistance batteries, especially rechargeable batteries, to generate extremely high current that way sufficient actually to melt bits of wire and make them glow red hot burn you very badly and start fires so be careful <laughs> okay let's go to uh, let's go to uh, john in kempton park hi john 
Hi. Um, I found uh, I started exercising again after many years, and I find that when I exercise fairly strenuously, um, after the exercise, I, I get a, a, like a, a white light around the periphery of my sort of outside uh, bottom edge of my eyes, like there's a bright light shining from the side, um, which sort of restricts your vision slightly because you have this sort of glare in your eye. And I'm trying to find out what that is caused from. Gee, interesting. Hi, John. Um, I'm always worried about things to do with eyes because they're so precious. And if this is happening regularly, it argues there is actually something going on because it, it doesn't sound entirely normal. And I would would get it checked. Maybe go and see an ophthalmologist. Um, I'm not a brilliant expert on eyes. I've only done the minimum uh, ophthalmology during my time at medical school. Um, it doesn't sound like it's a detached retina, but it could be because one of the signs of, of retinal detachment is a flashing light in the periphery of your vision. And it could be that the strenuous exercise is causing the, the retina to come away slightly from the uh, supply of blood at the back. Maybe maybe just it's just coming off very slightly and going back on. It needs checking. Um, another possibility is just that when you exercise very hard, um, you are putting a huge load on your cardiovascular system and the retina is really, really sensitive to its blood flow. And so if anything reduces the amount of blood reaching the eye at any one time, perhaps because you've got very hot and um, so you, you're putting lots of blood into the skin, for example, to lose heat, it could be that your blood pressure is dipping just very slightly, especially if, if it's happening when you stand up, um, similar to when you stand up from a hot bath and you, you notice this effect, and that could be why. Mm. But I would, I would advise you just to be sure, because eyes are so precious, do please get that checked out. All right, John, you'll go and check that out, eh? Yes, definitely. All Thank right, you. thanks. John on the line from Kempton Park. We're talking about the whole cell phone, uh, using using your remote to open your car via a cell phone. Uh, Doug and Sanson, have you tried it? Good morning, uh, Stephen. Good morning, Chris. Yes, um, it, it's very, very strange in actual fact that it seems to work on the German vehicles. I have a German vehicle and I have a Japanese one. And uh, it appears it definitely does work on the one German. I think I've tried it. Um, can I mention the product? The name? Yeah, go on. Uh, I've got an Audi, and it definitely does work on the Audi. But uh, my Mitsubishi Bucky, it won't work. But um, it um, definitely, definitely does work. And you've done so. So basically, you're using your cell phone. Yes. Someone's pressing the remote on the one side, and on your cell phone, it's actually opening. Yes, I've got my cell phone outside, and I say to my wife, "Get the spare remote from wherever I've got it in the safe." And uh, talking through her cell phone, and she presses it up against the phone, and it opens my door. Gee, all right, Doug. <laughs> how far away is the car, Doug? Um, I've well, I was I was at the golf course, and my wife was um, ten kilometres away. Well, I'm, pr I'm pretty gobsmacked. Yeah. Um, I do know that there was a, a patch in, in Britain, there was this area uh, where people were parking their cars and then they couldn't get back into them again. And what was happening is that there were lots of microwave sources in local shops, I think including the ones that were communicating with banks so that people could process credit cards and things. And there was interference with uh, the car key unlock system because the frequencies were overlapping very slightly. Um, I'm not aware of anyone having done the experiment you're saying, though. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, I prove wrong. Um, I'm willing to accept what you say, but uh, it shouldn't happen. <laughs> no, I, again, <laughs> I can't I explain know. it. Maybe someone who's a, a physicist um, and, and knows about exactly how these things are transmitting, maybe they could help us out here. Well, the only reason I picked it up, I got somebody, somebody sent me an email and said, did you know this? And I said, oh, I don't believe this one little bit. And I went and tried it, and it actually did work. Now, whether it'll work on, uh, this might have been one of the old-type cell phones, when I say old, you know, not one of these ones that... Uh, you know, you can send emails mm. from, et cetera, et cetera. But um, 
it definitely did work. All right, uh, all right, Doug on the line from Santon. Gee, Chris, I mean, it's one of those things. Sometimes it's just it just takes a sort of a, a freakish set of circumstances, and maybe it's just about the particular type of remote control that the the German car is using. It's still very strange because the phone should be sensitive to the. Uh, sound waves that it that are coming into it because it has a microphone that's picking up sound waves and this is then transmitted digitally by the mobile phone to the base station and then whizzes via internal wiring to another base station which then turns it back into another microwave signal to your phone so i'm not really sure unless the phone is in some way becoming sensitive to the signal if that maybe if it's held next to the key really really close and this in some way is affecting the way in which the phone is is making signals but i'd, I'd be really surprised i can't explain that i'm sorry all right we're with the naked scientist chris smith he's with us for another 10 minutes talk radio 702 and 567 cape talk the naked scientist chris smith's with us just for another five minutes i'm afraid if you're you're unable to get through with your question you can sms us on 31702 and 31567 we'll try on answer it at a later stage chris we've got a got a desperate sms here saying desperate please is there a non-surgical way to lower a man's voice i've been struggling with it for years is there is there such a way of, of lowering a man's voice without resorting to the knife i don't think so. Um, the reason that your vocal cords uh, produce the sounds that they do is because they sit across your airway, so where your Ad Adam's apple is, that's the front of your voice box, and projecting backwards into your throat from there is uh, two strips of muscle, one on each side, which are the vocal cords, and they open and close as you speak, and by opening and closing it makes them vibrate, and when they vibrate they impart sound waves to the uh, air which is between the vocal cord and the front of your mouth and that air has momentum so it goes flying out of the front of your mouth but then leaves a slightly lower pressure behind it because the vocal cords have closed and so the air then goes back into your mouth because the atmospheric pressure is slightly higher and this causes a sort of resonance to go backwards and forwards between your vocal fold and the front of your mouth and because of the shape of your mouth and throat that shape amplifies selectively certain frequencies which are made by the vibrations of the cords opening and closing. So every single one of us has a slightly different shape to our throat and mouth cavity and our nose cavity, and therefore the resonance that we create in our heads that makes our voices sound the way it does is different from one person to the next. And the reason one person sounds like another, uh, sounds different to another, is because of that shape difference. And when someone does an impression of somebody else, what they're doing is trying to make their mouth sound or have a similar sonic capability or capacity similar to the person they're impersonating. So... In order to make your voice sound different, you therefore need to change the shape of the mouth and throat, and it's not just, therefore, the vocal cords that, that affect how deep your voice sounds, because if you have a long and, and very deep uh, distance between mouth and vocal cords, you will amplify lower frequencies than if you have a shorter distance. And so, unless you're going to get a new head, it's very difficult to completely rearrange the, the way in which your voice sounds. All right, I'm sorry, Desperate. Sounds like uh, it's going to be a long haul to try and lower your voice. I think possibly the last question we'll be able to take. Let's see how many we can squeeze in. Ron from Northcliffe, you've also got a question about sound. Hi, yes, uh, Chris, it's a funny little question that's been bugging me for, for many years. If you make a cup of hot chocolate um, and when you finish stirring it, you take the teaspoon and you tap the edge of the cup, there's a frequency, uh, a sound that is emitted from that. But every time you tap the cup, the frequency goes up. And I've done it 20, 30, 40, 50 times, and it just seems the frequency, every time you tap the edge of the cup, the frequency will go up. Why does it 
do that? And, uh, I mean, can you keep doing it to some point where the cup would break? Hello, Ron. Um, I appreciate time is short, so I'll speculate quickly on this. The frequency of the sound you hear is proportional to how stiff the substance is. And when you tap something, you make it move. And if you make it move, you can make a substance get more or less stiff. Now, if the, if the frequency of the tapping is going up, that means that you must be making the mixture of hot chocolate become stiffer as you tap it. Now, one possibility is that as you're tapping it, where you've, where you've actually stirred it, you've put some small bubbles in. And bubbles right. act as dampers, and they therefore make a fluid less stiff. So it will have a lower resonant frequency, it'll sound lower, but if you tap the cup, the bubbles will rise out a little bit, and this will make the fluid become a bit stiffer, and therefore it, its frequency will go up. And with progressive tapping, you'll notice that the frequency will go up and up and up. And you can try this yourself. If you put some bubbles into a liquid with an Alka-Seltzer tablet, or you make some fizzy drink or something, as you stir it and put the bubbles deep into the water, you'll notice that it, it, it has a lower frequency, and as okay. those bubbles rise to the surface, it, it goes up again. So have a go and see if, if that works. I think that might be one of the reasons, especially with frothy things like hot chocolate. It's one for the kids, Ron. You can have your own musical <laughs> orchestra. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Ron, the, Ron from Northcliffe on the line there. Christmas, thank you so much for being with us. Fabulous hour as always, and so many people, so much interest. And uh, good luck for tomorrow and finding that present. Oh, I'm off to the shops now, but thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Have a wonderful Christmas, everybody, and it's been lovely to chat to you this morning. The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, back with us uh, next year. Not sure if he's with us next week, but back with us next year. So, Chris Smith, thank you very much indeed.